Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. We're going to look today at the fall of mankind, and then in the midst of it, so what, what life was like before, what it was during the fall, and then what proceeds there, or what ends up being after the fall. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I know you just, see, just had a seat just a moment ago. If you would, stand with me one more time as we honor the reading of God's perfect and infallible word today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall surely, uh, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be made like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Let us pray this morning. Father, once again, thanking you, Lord, for this day. Lord, we thank you for the, the new members that are a part of this congregation. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word, Lord, that it would uh, divide Lord, that it would show us more of who you are. We thank you, Father, for this time and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So prior to the fall, we see perfect fellowship with God and with man. We see that he is, that Adam has been created, in fact, in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be a little bit in Genesis 2 and 3, and maybe some other parts of Scripture. It says in 2.18, then the Lord said, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. And so we see, and you know the story as Adam is in the garden, and he's there, and he's been naming animals, and, and all of the animals have companions, and God looks at man and says, it's not good for you to be alone. And so we'll create one for you. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it. Uh, in its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so here for this moment, and we don't know exactly how long Adam and woman were in the garden before the fall takes place, but this is certainly because 
there was sin that was completely absent, completely void of the garden, we know that this was in that moment a perfect marriage, a perfect unity that takes place, that God gives man this woman, and they are together in perfect unity. In fact, the first time that, and if you know this, the scripture is filled with, with stories and with poetry and with uh, parables and narratives and all of these things. But in this moment, it is the first time in recorded in, in scripture that poetry enters humanity. Did you know this? That when, when woman is revealed and that Adam begins to see her, in fact, the only recorded words that we know of mankind before his fall is Adam saying this poem. He sees woman and it says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall become, be called woman because she was taken out, of, taken out of man. And so the very first thing that Adam sees of woman, it stirs in his heart poetry. Isn't this kind of, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Ladies, this is, a, you know, I don't know if that was your, your husband's first response when seeing you, but it, it was for Adam that he saw a woman and immediately something creative stirred in him. A desire for her, a pure desire. Not a desire that we see in this world where, where we see one another and that we can be caught up in just simply the looks of someone and we can, you, know, uh, you can speak to one another in a way that is demeaning or perverted or, or crosses the line. But this was not so, that sin was not there, that he wasn't just filled with lust and had to get his hands on woman. I've heard some people say that, oh, the first thing he says is, whoa, man, like, whoa, you know. No, no, no. He wasn't just filled with this, this outrageous lust but it was pure love for woman. The moment that God gives the helper to man was an incredible moment in the life of Adam. And so we see unity that is in the garden, that we know that Adam and woman, who will later become Eve, that Adam and Eve are in the garden, that they're walking with the Lord and that they have perfect fellowship with Him. It's important to, to understand the garden situation that it is sin that, that brings the barrier between us and God, isn't it? That is what, if, it, if ever in your life you feel away from the Lord, it is only your sin that has drawn you away. Because without sin, we have Eden here in our scripture that shows us that God not only created but he invited, he created this land and he created the world and the heavens and all of these things. And yet he invites humanity into relationship with himself. And so here is the perfect scenario for humanity, the garden. It's important, too, that you see the, the purity that is in this relationship. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the fruit of being in perfect relationship with God himself is that there is no shame, that there is no embarrassment, that, that this man and this woman had such a, a vulnerable and complete relationship with one another that they had nothing to hide from each other. They had no faults. There was nothing that would, would come between. He never had to ask her, well, what's wrong? And she would say, well, nothing's wrong. And then he, she'd say that over and over until eventually she'd tell him what's wrong, right? It was none of that. 
perfect trust, perfect vulnerability, perfect dependency upon the Lord. And so just before the fall, we see that God invites them with him in fellowship with one another in marriage. That this is the, the perfect illustration of what every marriage should look to. It's, it's wonderful fellowship with one another, but it's wonderful fellowship together with the Lord. I just did a, a wedding this past or last weekend, and the, the, a wedding itself, the ceremony is very quick, it's very simple. 10, 15 minutes, and we're out and we're, you know, at the reception having a good time. But leading up to that, we spent months after months in in premarital counseling where we're discussing one another and we're we're trying to break down walls or figure out different dynamics in their family and how these two lives will become one together. And in that I always share that, you know, if you look at your marriage as like a like a triangle and the two of you are on the bases of it and that God is at the top that the closer that you get with one another to the Lord, the closer you will see yourselves becoming toward one another. That as we draw unto the Lord together, our marriage becomes stronger. It really does. Good, there's some amens. Good, you've seen this, you've experienced this, that, that a husband and a wife sitting down together and not just sitting down to cover the bills or the budget or figure out what's still in the plan for eating this week, but they sit down and say, let us commune with the God who invites us to commune with Him. That is the sign of a strong marriage. That is the sign of a marriage that is headed the right direction, that if we can stay focused on the things of the Lord, we will grow closer to Him, and inevitably, the fruit is that we will grow closer to one another. You can, you can have one spouse in a relationship who, who goes after the Lord with all of his heart or with all of her heart, and the spouse, sometimes not interested, gets a little bit left behind. And that's not to say that you, shouldn't, you should pursue the Lord if your spouse desires not to. Pray for your spouse. But the way that God designed marriage is not just simply between a man and a woman, but God in the center. Yes, marriage is only between a man and a woman, but marriage must have God present for it to be a biblical marriage. And so we see this wonderful, gracious God in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we really, just in the first three chapters of our Bible, we really begin to see the characteristics of who God is, what God is, what does He do. He is, we can see, firstly, Creator. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of His work that He had done in creation. Verse 4, And then there were generations of the heavens and of earth when they were created, in that day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so there's something significant that happens in chapter 2, verse 4. If you're not careful, you'll quickly overlook it, as I have many, many times. But there are here where God has now created, everything has, is now in order, that He has taken what was void and what was uh, absent, that He has now created, that where there was darkness, there is light, where there was no humanity, now there is. That He has created all of these things and He has rested. But it is in verse 4 of chapter 2, 
that it says in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. This is the first time in our scripture that God goes from just Elohim to Yahweh. That he goes from this is creator, creator Elohim, this is God, creator God, and then now it is Yahweh. It is a God who not only creates, but has relationship with his creation. Do you see this? That, that there's something magnificent that comes up on the scene that we see that his name is, of course, given to him as the deity that he is creator. And yes, he is. But he gives us the name Lord God Yahweh, a personal pro- pronoun to the creator himself. So maybe a, a, a haunting question for some certainly on the day of judgment, is do you know Him as Creator and Savior? That you can be saved and know very little about who God is. That is true. That the thief on the cross did not know the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, which is just deep, nerdy theological terms that discuss the decrees of God and the order in which that they had. But the, the thief on the cross didn't have those distinctions, and yet he was in paradise the day that he died. You can also know a lot about God and not be saved. So yes, you can, you can know very little about God and be saved. And you can there also know a lot about God and not be saved. James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So you know that God is creator? Great. You know that he's Elohim? Great. Even the demons know these things. Even Satan himself knows that he's creator. It's Yahweh that... He wants nothing to do with. Satan is more than happy for you the rest of your life to just give credit to God for his beautiful creation and not know him. Sometimes we think, I think that the church often believes that Satan, uh, he, he doesn't really have a hold of you unless you're doing hard drugs and you're not in church and you're, and you're off in a, in a, living a scandalous life of of. Uh, you know, I don't know, wickedness in any way, debauchery or whatever it is, that, that we think that that's when Satan's got a hold of you. No, Satan is content with you if you just live a life sitting in a seat week after week and never surrendering to the Savior who says, I'm worth surrendering. Satan cheapens the name of God. Look to our text again, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you, have, uh, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he say this? Well, look at chapter 2. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat... Of it, you will surely die. This is Satan's tactic in the, in the garden. This is Satan's tactic today. He's trying to convince a people that God is withholding things from you because he desires to rob you. 
Oh, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to abstain from this or keep away from this or not do this or not say this or not think this because, I, because he just wants to rob you. John Piper once said that sin gets its powerful or sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. This is what Eve was convinced of in the garden is that if I just eat of this thing that yes, somehow God God is not for me, that he's robbing me of this moment that Satan said he's he's basically said you can't have of any of these trees. That's not what God has said. He says you can have of all of it. Just don't eat of this one. And, and Eve begins to think in her mind, he must be robbing me. If I can't have this right now, he must be robbing me. And so, Satan cheapens the perspective, the character of God we know this is true because remember how God has addressed himself as Elohim throughout chapters 1 and 2. And then in, in he gives to them at the end of chapter 2, Yahweh, the name, the personal God. And how does Satan address in chapter 3? How does he address the woman? He says to the woman, did God, did Elohim actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What is Satan doing? He is, he is now watering down the personal name of God. Do you see this? That up until up this point, it was creator God, creator God, and then it's personal God, and then all of a sudden, Satan comes before this woman who has a personal relationship with God, and he tries to strip it away. He tricks her. He deceives her. He deceives her, firstly, by just, by just tarnishing the character of God. If you are dealing with doubt or you're having discussions with others that don't know Jesus as Savior and, and it's beginning to, to fester in your mind that maybe God is not as good as I thought he was. Well, how can a, how can a loving God allow this to happen? Or how can, if at any point you begin to feel the attack on the character of God, back off from it. God is not trying to rob you. But he convinces the woman of this. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees in the garden. And then she then says, but God said, you shall not eat of any of the the fruit of the trees that are in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so she she too follows in line with this temptation to look at God's character as as it's not, to look at God's character in a way that does not hold him to perfection, that does not hold him to completely sovereign and good. When we create a God that is not the God of Scripture, we then can feel a license to modify his commands. Well, if, if that's not who God is, then, then maybe that's not what God said. Do you see? This is exactly how the enemy is, is working on the heart of woman, and this is how he works in our own lives. Well, God's not really for you, and so if he's, if he's not really for you in this way, well, God doesn't really understand how much enjoyment I get out of this area. Or I wouldn't be able to function in my life without this, and so God just needs to understand. And then from there, we begin to break the things that God has said that we shouldn't break. 
God's instructions are not open to human modification. The family unit is given to us in chapter 3 of our Bible, and it too is not open for modification. This is what marriage is. I know that sounds very controversial in 2023, but marriage is, listen closely children, it is only between a man and a woman. This is how God designed it. This is that that we can't back away from that. It's a silly thing to back away from. And yet when we begin to question the character of God, we feel a license to modify His commands. God, help us to not modify the things that God has said are good. And so we see this this marriage. Well, what is marriage? As we've, we've been discussing, this is the union between a man and a woman. And not just that, as I mentioned, this sermon that I, I preached for this, uh, this wedding last week, I, uh, in it, I had someone come up to me afterward and, and note some of the controversy that I was sharing in the sermon. Uh, hey, I noticed some of the stuff you said, like, you said some different things for the bride, and you, then you said, you know, had her commit to some things that were different than the groom, uh, and then you had the groom commit to some things that were different than, than the bride, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> they are two different people, <laughs> right? And, I, and, and, what, and so I began to explain these things, and, and even in the sermon there, read Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So when I, when I got before a people in 2023 and says, says wives, submit to your husbands, and, and you are to love her as Christ has loved the church, there were people that were not sleeping during that moment. right? They were awake, just sitting there wondering, what is this? How old school is this guy? Well, biblical. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how, I mean, that old, I guess. uh, 4,000 years, 5,000 years old as far as, you know, where we get these ideas that shouldn't be as controversial as they are. And yet, maybe even you sit there today feeling a little hesitant about these things. Oh, I'm supposed to submit to my husband? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to love her as Christ has loved the church? That the burden has fallen on the man to, to be responsible for his wife. In fact, that if you notice that it is the woman that comes that is tempted here in the garden, but it's man that is standing right next to her allowing these things to take place. Can't blame the fall on the woman alone. They stood there together and Adam refused to lead the way that he was called to lead. And so they begin to compromise. They have compromised who God is. They looked at him as just the rule setter, just as the one who creates Elohim. And they missed what God had invited them to call him, Yahweh. 
And so this is all takes place before the fall, and then here we see the fall. Look at verse 3 in our text. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, that your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed together fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. You see, the, the, the marriage that they had before the fall now changes, that the vulnerability that they once shared with one another has been stripped from them, that the, the, the uh, type of transparency that they once enjoyed and the trust that they had there in the garden before the fall all of a sudden was taken from them. And they realized that they were alone They were naked and they were ashamed and they were uh, in the garden afraid of what was to come next. And we see again, even this conversation between the serpent and woman, this this idea of legalism that that we know that God said that you can't eat of this garden, but, but Eve adds to it that he says that we can't even touch it. She adds this legalistic idea that, that if we can just, that she can have these things in her mind that if, if I set the law up this way and that if I fulfill it, that, that I'll be good. And of course, that all falls away. But it is interesting that just in the first, in the, the first story of sin that we see legalism and antinomianism both on the scene, and that is what our hearts gravitate to, toward. Legalism is... The insistence that a person is accepted by God on the basis of his law keeping. It's this idea, and maybe some of you struggle with it, that we can get grace in, but we, it can only be kept by law keeping. One commentary says that this is the fall of the, or one of the main uh, heresies of the Catholic Church, is that it teaches that a person is initially justified at baptism. However, his final right standing before God is dependent on a life of continued adherence to religious rituals and spirit wrought good works. This is a heresy. That we see that Jesus is the only one that saves you, that Jesus is the only one that sustains you, and the only one that glorifies you. He even speaks harshly often throughout the Gospels to the Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says that he told, and this is the Pharisees, he told them, uh, told this par- uh, parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That there were those there, there were religious leaders that because of how well they felt that they kept the law, they trusted themselves. This is what Eve's doing. She's like, we haven't eaten of the tree. We haven't even touched the tree. We're doing pretty good. Creating additions to the law, thinking that, oh, well, you know, I mean, my family, no, we would never watch that rated movie. We would never do those things. Look, I'm all for personal convictions and you holding them, uh, you holding them to your, uh, accountable to your family. And there are certain things that in my home we will, we will not allow in our home that maybe you do. 
that we can't necessarily find in the Word of God, but that's just where we have felt convicted. Does that make us more saved? No, it just makes us obedient to the God who says, in your home, you're not going to allow these things. I'm not getting before you to preach those things, but I also need to let you know that those things do not make my ever-loving God more loving toward me. He forever loves me, not based on the law that I create and am able to keep, but that His Son has clothed me in His perfect law-keeping. And so He he, he speaks to, or Jesus in this parable speaks to a people who believe that they were keeping themselves righteous. And perhaps this is what woman, the, what Eve is considering in the garden is that, well, we haven't eaten it. We haven't even touched it. We don't ever get near the thing. This isn't how God loves us. God doesn't just love us because He knows what a future version of ourselves will look like and He's pleased in it. He loves us because He looks at us and He sees us clothed in His Son's righteousness and says, you are accepted. Not because of what you have done or haven't done, but you are accepted because Christ has saved you. When you look at a a newborn baby, when you have your first child or however many kids, it doesn't get old, that you look at your, your new baby and you don't consider the things that that child must do in order to earn your love. No. You look at it and you know, I am deeply in love with you. As, I, as my wife is expecting uh, here again for the third time ne- uh, in July... I'm already, you know, talking to the baby, and we, we pray over the baby, and we sing to the baby. Well, she doesn't let me sing to the baby, but she sings to the baby, and, and we, we feel the baby kick and all these things. And, and as I'm even considering those things, I know that uh, this baby is going to really stress me out at some point. I'm going to have to put this kid in timeout at some point. I know that this kid's going to say something that I'm just going to be like, I can't believe you said that, right? I mean, we'll be out in public and she will embarrass me. She will make me scratch my head. She will make me cry some tears, right? Your kids ever make you cry some not so happy tears? Yes. And though I know that this little girl that I will one day hold, I know that she will reject me at times. I know that she will say things that will greatly disappoint me. You cannot stop my love for her. That I will forever love her. No matter what she does, whether, whether she grows up and becomes who knows what, it, it, what. I pray that God would save her at a young age and all of these things, and I believe that He will. But her, my love for her is not based on what she will do or what she will accomplish. But that she's mine. Do we look at our Heavenly Father the same way that we, we, can, that we should? We should look at Him and say, God, You love me despite me. And does that make you want to just get away and sin all the more? No. No, it makes you want to cuddle up with this God who says, Call me Abba Father, that You are mine. When I first started preaching law gospel, and I remember having people come up to me afterward, and I've shared this before in sermons, but nervous that, Brandon, if you preach this way, people are going to go out and sin. And I, and I remember saying, brother, they are already sinning. 
They're already there. They're going to go out and sin. Like, I know that you guys are going to hear this sermon today, and guess what? Should, should the Lord not come back right before the end of this sermon, or maybe in the middle of, or whenever, you're going to sin again. You're going to need the Father who looks past you and sees His Son covering you. Do not fall for the lie that your good works save you. Be freed and know that it is Christ's perfect work that has saved you. And so that's legalism. And then the pendulum can often swing to antinomianism that teaches that because God's grace is greater than all of our sin, that we no longer live under any obligation to obey God's laws or His law. That if you do good works, I'm sorry, if you do good works, do not figure out uh, your, that do not figure out your own justification, that we, are, uh, that we have already been declared in God's sight, and so we don't need to do anything. This is what antinomianism claims. Much of the teaching for the antinomian is it, that it denies that someone can displease God by his disobedience. That believers are no longer needed to heed the warnings in Scripture, which is also far from the truth. Antinomianism presents a Christianity that requires no personal effort or spiritual striving against sin. It offers a counterfeit freedom to the the true freedom that Christ gives believers. Eve was lied to and convinced that if she acted upon the offering of sin, that she would be liberated. So just in this small course of time, she questions the, the character of God. She questions the law of God. She believes that she was already upholding some of the laws of God. And now she's, the pendulum has switched so far over that she's just lawless, that she's going to break the law of God. How quickly we can go from feeling self-righteous and the rules that we feel like we're keeping to switching over to it doesn't really matter because my sin has been paid for. She wanted to be liberated, and so she indulged in sin. This is the constant cycle of our own hearts. It's the cycle of our, this is our society, too. The Israelites, I'm reminded of in 1 Samuel, how they pleaded for a king when God was their king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think the, the verses will be up there for you. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king who will judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they are not rejecting For they have not rejected you, but are rejecting me from being the king over them. The cry of an unbeliever is this. It is, liberate me by placing me in my captivity. That's that's what the Israelites, even when when they're freed, when, when they are just begging, can we just go back to Egypt? At least they fed us there. Can we just go back to our chains? Can we go back to our bondage? It's interesting to see so many in our society uh, 
preach their, their doctrine of sin and that it will give you hope. That if you could just be who, who you are supposed to be, that you will feel more free. That if you could just, you can just change this and do this and be this and just be your true self, that's where you'll feel the most freedom. Isn't it the same lie in the garden? If you will just indulge in the very thing that God said you want in, that to not to indulge in, you will feel freedom. And was there freedom? Maybe, maybe for a moment there is a sense of freedom of, okay, this feels good, this feels natural. The cries of a culture that says, I was born this way, are in complete contradiction to the scripture that says, yes, you should be born again, <laughs> right? That, that yes, you were born this way to your former self, your, this sin nature that, that is the result of the fall, but you should be born again. True liberation does not come from returning to your captivity, but it is returning to your creator. That's where we are liberated. And so they get what they wanted. This is what God did with the the Israelites here who desired a king. He says, just give them what they want. He does this throughout scripture. Well, the people want this. Give them what their heart desires. And he does for Adam and Eve, verse 7 in our text, and then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here we have the fall that they made themselves clothing, trading the righteousness that God had once clothed them in for fig leaves that they found in the garden. I would say that this trade is the second most scandalous trade in all of human history as far as in terms of what they gave up in comparison to what they received. And so God, you can see in in our text that God confronts Adam and woman in the garden in verses 8 through 10. And then they begin to point blame on one another and on the serpent in verses 11 through 13. And then God curses the snake. He curses the woman and he curses Adam, he tells the snake that, that, that he'll live on his belly and eat dust and that he's going to create enmity between him and woman. And he tells the woman that she will have pain during childbirth and, the, and that, that the submission to her husband would create contempt in her heart. And so when you, again, when we say be submissive to your husband, if that, if that riles something up in you, women, that's because the scripture says it would. That there would be a disdain to do that. Oh, I don't want to submit to him. That's the result of the fall. And he tells Adam that the labor that he will do will be difficult. And that his life will one day end. You see, death wasn't even on the scene before the fall takes place. And then in verse 20, we see Adam gives his wife the name Eve. This takes place all after the fall. This takes place... Uh, after all of these things have been said and done, the contemplations of, of who is God, uh, is He trying to rob me? Yes, He's trying to rob me, so I will sin against Him. And then something beautiful happens in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
The reason why I say this is beautiful is because, remember, we've seen Elohim, then we've seen the God who calls, says, you can call me Yahweh, and then we see Satan come on, and then even Eve addressed him as Elohim, and then in verse 21, we see God saying, the Lord God. Just as quickly as sin comes into the play and as as quickly as there's brokenness in this world, God comes before them and still invites them to Yahweh. Still invites them to be with a God who has relationship with them despite their sin, despite our own sin. And we know that we've sinned. The scripture says as much in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that if you have come here today and believing that you are without sin, then you are living in some sort of weird self-righteous delusion. We know that we're sinners. We know that we're in desperate need for a holy God. As I get ready to close, I want us to look in Romans again, chapter 5. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, this is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who were sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of of the one who was to come. And so we have this federal headship of here is Adam who who sins and represents all of us, that we're all broken because of this. And and we can maybe look back and if you want to, you can say, well, if, if if I had been in the garden, what? What would you have done? The same thing, right? We would have just sinned, maybe even messed up the story even more. But Paul reminds us that this is the sin, this is death that spread to all men because all have sinned. Then in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So I ask you today, do you believe in God? Yes? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. My prayer this morning and even during this sermon is that if you, don't, if you know God as creator, wonderful. Wonderful. But do you know him as Savior? Do you know Him as Yahweh? Do you know Him as the God who invites you into relationship with Him? Maybe do you need to repent today of your legalistic heart? Have you fallen for the lie that you must do something to convince God to love you more? What a terrible place to be. What 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 an overwhelming place to be. To think that we have to earn something in order to receive Him. I've been there. That is, that is filled with nothing but torment. 
And if you think that you're pulling it off, you'll get to the place where you're not. And so what do you have to do? You have to begin to hide things. This is what Adam and Eve did. They, they even tried to clothe themselves and, and go and hide away from the God who sees. Do not hide. Or maybe you need to repent today for your antinomian heart. Have you fallen for the lie that it's God's grace means that you can just wallow in your lawlessness as you seek after counterfeit comforts? Oh, well, I'm stable. I, this makes me stable if I do this. Or this, this will, if I don't have this, or if, I don't, if I'm not doing this, I won't be happy. And God wants me happy, right? That's what the preacher on the television told me. God just wants me happy. I said that God's righteousness traded for the fig leaves was the second most scandalous trade in human history, and I still believe it. Because the most scandalous trade outweighs the first in that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That this is the true scandal. Is that yes, we let Adam and Eve, they left the righteousness of God and clothed themselves in fig leaves. And here we are wicked and lowly and dead in our sins and God makes him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a scandalous trade. Forgive us, Lord, if at any point we thought we had anything to contribute to that. Forgive us, Lord, that if at any point we thought that, that, was, that, that, we, that the pleasures of this world were worth more than the righteousness of God. For he has declared himself creator God. And that in which Satan himself confesses. But what Satan detests is his declaration. Call himself Abba Father. Brothers and sisters, hear my plea to you today. Do not dress yourselves in the fig leaves that can be fashioned with your own hands, but rather clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ that could only be presented to you today by His work alone. Jesus paid it all. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.